Welcome to the Against Unreason podcast. Today, I'm talking with a friend about several topics. Lessons we teach Occupy Wall Street logic idiots. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, silly, stupid things that, uh, that Occupy Wall Street logic and any page related to them, including Unbiased America or Will Ricciardella in particular. <laughs> Kevin Ryan, Ricky, uh, Will Ricciardella, Greg Kurtner. I'm sure there's another guy saying that's <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think I've ever heard the name Red Kurtner before. I just well, Red Kurtner, the, the main the main ODL guy. He's the one who's always joking about being Pinochet. He has he he really he really he he's really proud of saying you know women shouldn't vote or or uh, commun communists aren't people that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, okay. I actually I don't know if it's Facebook's algorithm or whatnot. I do follow uh, ODL, but it doesn't pop up as much as unbiased America. And so basically Kevin Ryan's name is the one who I'm always seeing on irritating posts that are stupidly simplistic and obviously more of a polemic trying to push a point irrespective of the evidence rather than vice versa. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So anyway, I think the last conversation that I saw was you and a guy, he was, what was he talking about? Mark or Marx or Adam Smith or... Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people, okay. Well, I'll just, I'll just ex explain that to you. So the, the post on um, ODL was something to the effect of Marx believes that labor theory of value says that a, a product, a product is valued by how much labor you put in. And that's obviously false because um, you could make mud pies and that's worth nothing. That's, that's, you know, the, sh the simplest way people put it. Right. It's a complete straw man. I'll, I'll, I'll pause myself. Do you understand why that's a straw man or have you heard that before? Well, I saw your explanation that basically multiple things go into how, what, what is, what something is worth. But in any case, I think your argument was regardless of where something gets its value, when it is valued by the public, it is simply that, what was it? Adam Smith that you were talking about uh, says there's a certain amount of that value that you're entitled to as the person who made it. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so let me, I'll just start from the bottom and explain it all. So um, th there are two, not, not necessarily competing, but two perspectives of how we value things. The one we're most familiar with today is what um, Austrians and maybe even classical economics call subjective or supply and demand, which is nothing's worth anything other than what you're willing to pay for it. Right. And that, um, but it makes sense for the most part. Um, the only problem with it, at least in practice, is that it ignores the bargaining power, purchasing power, or just power dynamics in general of what a person has to supply and demand, which is kind of like saying, just to give you a most extreme example, back in the day when slavery was legal, the, the value of labor is effectively free because there is no legal way for a slave to sell his labor. The slave has no legal right to bargain, the, the, the slave has no legal right, or at least not practical legal right, to defend himself in the, in the um, event he's abused, at least by modern standards. So the, the supply and demand is, for lack of a better word, dictated by the local laws or culture of what you are allowed to supply and demand. Right. And um, we can I'll give you another example. Fast forward today, housing. Uh, under supply and demand, we predict that with more houses than homeless people, 
a builder or a landlord should do his or her best to sell or rent out the house because having anything is better than nothing, right? Right. That might be a, you know, oversimplification, but the point is game theory and supply and demand predict that um, a person sitting on, you know, a house or a land that's unused is wasteful because it's useless unless you extract value from it. That's the simplest explanation, but this ignores, and everybody knows this, regardless of where you stand, that's not what actually happens. They, They sit on it because they speculate that by holding on to something that's already scarce, they could make it more valuable, more scarce, and decrease the supply, therefore relatively increase the demand, therefore profit. So game theory would, would game theory predicts that a person should get anything because anything is better than nothing. Right. But you look at the, the bigger picture of reality, and that tells you that if you have more information or more power, such as you could afford to wait, you're, you're not starving as a landlord, then you could sit on your property and wait till the highest bidder comes along and or throw in another factor, maintenance costs. Or, or ironically enough, <laughs> why aren't houses free if nobody wants it? Because labor. Even if nobody wants a house, everybody knows that it still takes labor and material to build it. So nobody right. would ever give out a house for free. Right. Yeah. So that's just um, two very obvious examples of why supply and demand is great on a very simplistic or maybe macro level, but it doesn't explain the nuances of human behavior. Right. So, so go ahead. Oh, um, so would another example be if a business was competing with another business that was somewhat smaller and it lowered the price of its product or service below the point of actually breaking even. So it was operating at a loss, but because it's bigger, it can operate at a loss long enough to put the opponent out of business. And so in that case, again, the simple rules of supply and demand are not dictating the price that that business is charging for its service or product. Uh, Kind of, yeah, yeah. Or you could argue that the laws still apply, but you need to have the right amount of information to accurately assess the outcome. Right. So it's not that supply and demand are wrong. It's that supply and demand are just one of many factors you have to consider. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I'll, 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 that's actually, you know, a, another good example. Stefan Molyneux was famous for making a video about 10 or 12 years ago called, um, you know, the myths or the the fallacies that people make for free market capitalism. One of the arguments he had in there was that in a, in a free market, we would have monopolies or in a free market, a company would, would do just like you said, which is they will ask us to kill the competition. And Stefan argued at the time, which is that's unsustainable. Nobody would do that. That's, that's stupid. That's not profitable. Why would anybody do that? He was either naive or dishonest to not know that some companies literally can afford to. And some companies understand that short-term losses in exchange for market share is worth it. And um, another common straw man argument is that a monopoly is impossible because nobody could actually literally own 100%. But they ignore that even if you had 70 or 80% or even 50% in some cases, that is so big that nobody else comes close. And that may be a technical non-monopoly but practically, you do have so much power that it would be impractical for somebody to compete against you. So back right. to Stefan, 
he did not see, or if he did, he's dishonest, that Amazon was doing exactly that. Amazon to this day, correct me if I'm wrong, their retail side of the business is still losing money. And currently, they account for somewhere close to half or more of all U.S. e-commerce transactions. It, it is so synonymous with online shopping that it, people almost don't think about it. When they say online shopping, people almost instinctively think, know what you're talking about. Right. And actually, um, I'm not 100, you know, I'm not as familiar uh, on that specific topic, but I do know of other anti-business practices that Amazon's been caught doing. For example, they seem to be... Anti-competition, Yeah, well, yeah, anti-competition. They seem to be, they'll invest supposedly in a new business, a startup business venture, and they'll basically get enough control of it to where they learn significant amounts of the trade secrets of that service, and they will basically, in a few months or a year or whatever, put out their own competition and virtually put those businesses out of business. You know, basically illegal corporate espionage. (laughs) I'm not sure if, I mean, I'm sure they did it. Yeah, I'm sure if they did it, they did it legally. So it might not really be trade secret if they were allowed to, you know, um, learn it or transfer in some legal way. But yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that businesses are doing that. If they did have non-disclosure, um, it would, it would, I'm not a business lawyer, but I, I, I would assume that if something was material, meaning information, regardless of its form, was materially beneficial or materially relevant, then it doesn't matter how, how you learn it or copy it. If you, if you stole it, you stole it. Um, that's, that's, right. the, that's the, well, and I, but I can't remember the specific example. It was something I read in the the Wall Street Journal about three weeks ago or four weeks ago or something like that. I think multiple companies had filed a lawsuit or something to that effect or just, you know, gone to the press and talked about how Amazon invested in their business. And then after they found out enough about the product that they had, Amazon would put out a competitor after hardly any time. And it essentially if not immediately put it out of business, put it at serious threat of going out of business. Yeah. Um, so now back to um, uh, Molyneux. So the, a- Amazon did exactly that, which is they go out of their way to make things as cheap as possible, even to lose money, because they know that is far more valuable to keep you as a customer. You are more valuable as a name and contact than what you buy. Right. Yeah. So that's what Amazon you know, invest. You could argue that this is obviously an investment. They're still making rational choice. They still are winning at the end. That's kind of the point, which is Molyneux literally said this. He says, no board of directors would allow somebody to go at a loss just to get market share. He's totally wrong. This is exactly what people do. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm not a hundred percent sure if, if this case is one of them, but I think Amazon fires, I don't even know if they charge enough to break even with the physical equipment itself, but because there's so much, so much of the package that ties in with the rest of Amazon's service that it ends up still making tons of money, despite perhaps the product itself in this case, the Amazon or the Kindle fire isn't itself being profitable. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've seen um, videos of people making, um, yeah, um, not making gadgets, reviewing gadgets. And yes, some, uh, I do believe I've seen somebody say, I don't know if it's true, but I've seen somebody say that the fire device or at, or at least some of them 
are intended to be losses. Meaning if you do, if you buy it and do nothing with Amazon, you fucked them over. Right. Exactly. They give, they <laughs> are willing to lose money to, to send it to you because that is your pipeline to buy more stuff. Kind of like a feeding tube. Yeah. So the, the, I mean, the same is true. Here's another example. We, we can completely step out of Amazon. Ink printers. We know that inkjet printers are sold at a loss in exchange for you buying their ink forever. Right. Yeah. Which is why so many people complain about, why, why don't I just buy a new printer? Because that's almost as cheap as getting a, you know, some ink or something like that. Or if the printer is only an, a year old, then you may as well get a new printer because of how expensive the ink is or something to that effect. It, yes, exactly. And that, that joke has been true for 20 years. It's not, it's not even funny. Um, yeah. The, the, Same thing with like the smelly good things that you plug into your wall. Like you can buy the actual diffuser with, and it comes with two scent things. And then when you go back to find a, to buy a pack of the scented refills, they're almost as expensive as just buying a brand new diffuser. Exactly. And so, so in that light, um, let's uh, you know, really segue into, this is one of the things that I always challenge libertarians on. Because libertarians would l- always tell us, hey, in a free market, somebody would just compete and make a better product. Okay. So today, tell me, where is that better printer? Who is this uh, benevolent printer maker that is not ripping you off? I'm not aware of it. I mean, maybe it exists. <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> yeah. There are there are, there are ink there are ink refillers, yes. And um, I've read that you know the, the the main reason inkjet printers keep updating their firmware is to prevent them. But the point is, yes, making ink refills is easy, but until you own the printer, it's limited in how much damage you can do. And right. to this day, I'm sorry, there is no competitor to the 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 five or 10 major, major printer companies, or if there is, they're not priced in a way that makes sense to an, a, an average consumer. We've, we've right. accepted that. I mean, it's uh, the, the reason they get away with it is because all things considered, despite our drop in demand, drop in the, you know, per, per product or per base, per person demand, but it might mm-hmm. increase demand based on, um, you know, aggregation or, or economic growth and all that. But based on what at least theoretically should be a decrease in demand, it's put it this way. Printing costs are still a very small cost in our everyday life. That's how they get away with it. So when every time somebody right. says, uh, you know, a Starbucks a day, yeah, five bucks a day adds up to a lot in a lifetime, but five bucks a day is still a small fraction of your, your money. If you make a hundred or 200 a day, and that's why they get away. Yeah. So the point of this is that the free market claim that competition will always bring lower prices, better products, prevent monopolies is just wrong. And it doesn't account for lots of human behaviors. It's helpful in predicting a good portion of it. I, I will concede that. But it doesn't admit some very obvious facts. And so we go back a little bit to um, you know, the original post about Marx. What is labor theory of value? I'll try to explain it as simple as possible. Labor theory of value says that kind of like subjective theory or kind of like our normal perspective of pricing, looking at things through the lens of pricing. I think that's probably the easiest way. If you think of mm-hmm. subjective pricing or libertarian Austrian economics, um, they view things completely in terms of dollars, meaning I give you three bucks for a coffee, you give me five bucks for a brick, so-and-so. Five bucks represents what you're willing to pay, how much labor you believe it costs to make a brick, yada, yada, yada. So we, mm-hmm. we believe that 
at any point when a transaction happens, two people exchange hands of what they believe is mostly a fair trade. But of course, in reality, obviously you pay five bucks for a brick because you value a brick more than five bucks and vice versa. That aside, that's looking at things through the lens of dollars and pricing. Labor theory basically says we will look at things through the lens of workers and labor because all things are made by labor. Yes, even things that are automated. So, right, at least indirectly. Yeah. So, labor theory simply says that if and when two things are exchanged, then at least in theory, you can reasonably expect that when two things of equal value are exchanged, whether it's a rose for a cup of coffee or a glass of wine for a um, lemon, they are somewhat of equal value in labor, right. which is kind of a very simplest way of saying labor is money. Or you can you could see things through the lens of labor just as much as you could see things through the lens of dollars. That's really what it is. Right. You can come at it from either perspective. Exactly. You can say everything boils down to this just as easily as you could say, oh, wait, no, it all boils down to this. It's te- technically they're both right because it entirely depends on the paradigm you're looking at it from. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Because a capitalist will tell you all day that you can't make money unless you put in labor, but they know damn well, Turn, you know, in the next breath, wait five seconds, they'll, they'll tell you, oh no, you can make money by just being a landlord or earning interest or creating, creating a service. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or just putting some cash in the stock market and exactly. leaving it there for long enough. You, the labor of opening up your stock stockbroker account on the internet, placing your money in it, that labor isn't proportional to the money that you would make off of it. The The amount of money that you make off of it isn't entirely proportional to the amount of money that you put into it and you had to at your disposal in the first place. Yeah. And so labor theory would say that when you invest 10 bucks into the stock market and make another 10 bucks and double your money, it's not that you didn't put in labor. It's that somebody values whatever you own at twice as what you put, you bought, which means right. they still believe that to some implied extent, without being too insane, yes, they still believe that paying you 20 bucks for the stock you bought 10 is worth whatever labor they need to put to earn it. And I, I dare any libertarian to tell me they disagree. Right. Because what else would, yeah, what else does, you know, this is how they justify anything. If, they, if they're going to tell you that taxation is theft or you, you deserve every money, every dollar you earn, or billionaires and millionaires work very hard for their money and they, they justly earned every, every cent, they have to believe that what they earn is justly earned and they are not going to give it away for less than market value. And market value is basically what a person is willing to labor to get it. Right. Yeah. So again, I'll just try to wrap up the labor theory thing, which is- Like you said, labor theory says that regardless of what a piece of mud pie or a computer is worth, if and when that transaction does occur, the least replaceable and most essential component of the production process is labor. Therefore, the laborer is entitled to all or at least most of the uh, price of the product. If you sell a computer for $1,000, Every person who labored for it is entitled to split up that $1,000. There shouldn't be any middlemen for it. There's, there's material costs and there's labor costs, and that's it. So right. a capitalist would counter this and say, well, what about uh, I risked my investment? I, I provided the, the factory. And so you have to ask, what 
allowed you to have the, this upper hand or advantage over a worker that entitles you to take a portion of this earning. So um, in, in Marx's view, if a person works at a factory and makes a t-shirt or a computer, and when that computer is sold, a worker is entitled to that full value because he is the least replaceable and most essential part of the process. So if the computer sells for $1,000, a laborer is entitled to all $1,000 minus material costs. A capitalist would argue that because a boss provided the factory, he's entitled to a portion of it. Otherwise, uh, why would I employ a worker if I'm not going to make a profit? So what, yeah, what is their justification for making a profit off of a worker? I mean, in, th- in this case, I would agree that if, if the uh, businessman provided, say, tools, uh, place, and all that sort of thing, that he's entitled to the amount of value that that contributed to the product. Okay. I'm not sure exactly what a libertarian would say, but... Okay, okay. Fair. I, I, that's very close to what, what most people would say. That's, that's, that's fair. Now, that's not untrue. I mean, even, even in the most extreme case, regardless of what you like it, it's logically understandable. But you have to ask, what created the situation where one person can provide a factory and a person could not? Right. Well, in a lot of cases, it's just luck, which is an underestimated whole component of the whole system. Say, whether you're born into money or whether you just happened upon a product that at that moment in time was gaining steam through just the whole system and not necessarily your ingenuity and whatnot. You may have just accidentally made all that money. And so therefore you get, you have a foothold that was an exactly. accident. Yeah. So this is what I, what I, when I talk to people, this, what I normally call this is unfair advantage, regardless of how you have the means to build a factory. The fact that you have a factory does give you an unfair advantage to somebody who does not. So right. the next question is this, whether you advocate for socialism or universal basic income or some form of increased opportunity for every for everybody, this is a question that I, I think I've stumped everybody on and they, they, don't, they don't like hearing it because they really don't have a good answer, which is what advantage would you have if every person was allowed to use the land they see that's not used or the factory that you're, you're owning was not protected by the state? What advantage would you have if everybody had as much money as you? Right. You'd have, well, actually, again, I would say that random <laughs> chance because r- no matter what there's a certain amount of randomness in the system yeah, and so even if you started everyone else equally one day whether it's obviously some people are going to work harder than others mm-hmm. and some people are going to have more knowledge about whatever they're doing than others but there's a massive amount of randomness in the whole system that many of the people that are working their fingers to the bone are still not gonna exactly excel and many of the people that are kind of just getting by are actually going to, by luck and chance, get ahead of the game. And the more money that you have and the more influence you have, the more ability you have to get more. Exactly. So, yeah. So in, in more simplistic terms, the point of my question or, or my answer is you would have very little advantage or the only advantage you would have left is if you work harder. Right. So yes, some people are stronger. Some people are more work, have more work ethic. Some people are smarter. Some people do have better health and some people do have the unfair biological ability to earn more by the moment they are born. Mm-hmm. But 
that is far different than economic advantage. And this is another very dishonest point that libertarians don't like to admit. They like to conflate economic property with uh, biology. So when you say, you know, somebody has unfair advantage, they say, oh, so are you saying tall people need to be forced to be short? Are you saying tall people can't play basketball? No, we're saying nobody should be born with money they didn't earn. Nobody should have capital that they didn't labor for. If you take away these advantages, you will quickly dismantle every advantage that a rich person with, with a kid has. You know, that rich kid, the today's rich kid, would have to work just as hard as, or at least much harder than he, he does today than a poor kid with none of these advantages. If you allowed one man one vote, it doesn't matter how rich you are, you still have one vote. Similarly, if you uh, di- didn't allow people to buy their way into better schools, then everybody would have to be in a you know, equally good or equally bad school. If you don't allow people to you know, br- bribe teachers or bribe policemen, then everybody would be at the same advantage or disadvantage regardless of how much money they have. This is what equalizing the opportunity is. It's taking away people's ability to use money, especially money they didn't earn, to buy advantages that other people don't have. Right. Yeah. So, so let me double t- yeah. check that I know what you're saying. Are you, You're simply saying that that if everyone was equalized, that things would basically end up like that. You're, are you, or are you specifically suggesting that that is a policy that we enact is equalizing everyone at birth? Uh, I believe we should equalize economic opportunities at birth, yes. So what would that entail? That would entail getting rid of inheritance. That would entail limiting um, how much property you can own. That would entail not allowing um, people to sit on property they're not utilizing. That would entail some, some form of limiting ownership of a publicly traded company. It's many, various ways of limiting how rich a person can get unless and until the poorest person isn't being unnecessarily, you know, suffering to, to put it, right. to put it more simply. I don't care how rich this is contrary to what a lot of people think. I do not care how rich the rich people are. I care how poor the poorest people are. So if you feed every person and nobody has to get, get up and make another person richer in exchange for food, I don't care if the, the richest person is a trillionaire. Uh, I don't care if Bezos? 10 generations that never have to work as long as nobody else does either. Right. So I agree and disagree with all of <laughs> those things to, to various degrees. The first one that I, I think you mentioned was that you shouldn't be able to inherit wealth. And my thing is I don't see how, how that could easily be implemented in a non-authoritarian way. <laughs> okay, I, 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 I accept that. So your 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 uh, your question is basically, you know, how can you seize property without without using force? And my answer to that is, all property is force. We simply accept some more than others. Right. So elaborate on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gladly. So think of it this way: today, what empowers a landlord to charge a tenant whatever amount he asks for? The libertarian will tell you, oh, supply and demand. But no, no. Take take a little step further. What allows this landlord to have the control of the supply? Well, there's a couple. The Depending on how much, first off, competition, like is there any other landlords that are also offering a different price for better value? But then there's also how many other landlords are there around? Is this landlord the only person? And then he can pretty much arbitrarily charge as much as he wants. Yes. But even more simply, 
what makes a landlord a landlord? Ownership of the land. What makes you what makes ownership of the land? Having invested money into the land enough to buy it uh, <laughs> legally or, or more or more simply you, you bought it from somebody right right if i asked you what what um what makes ownership of a slave well, what's your answer you bought him right in a system in which you could buy yes. him, that would be the exactly so you own a land because you're allowed to legally buy it you own a slave because you're allowed to legally buy it you own a car because you're allowed to legally buy it everything all ownership comes down to what the government allows you to buy and own Right. But of course, in the case of a slave, it is at the ex- like the direct expense of the ethical livelihood of another no, uh, obviously, sentient yes. being. Okay, so that, that's, that's exactly why I'm making this point. We've accepted that owning land is not a violation of other people's rights. But we used to say the same thing about slavery. We used to believe that owning a slave is not a violation of a slave's rights. We now know that's not true. Today, we can. Well, that's because back then they didn't think slaves had rights. And today we don't believe humans have rights to, to land, and, land and housing. We only, we only recognize land and housing to people who can afford it. That's the same, that's the same idea. Right. So um, I'm hearing that I'd, I'd also point out that it was actually a book the, that I was reading, the How Nations uh, Fall or I can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head. But anyway, or Why Nations Fail, that was the name of the book. And basically, it was talking about how it was giving examples. And one of them was a town that is split by the southern border. Mm-hmm. Same name and everything. But on the American side, it is much more prosperous. And on the Mexican side, it is less prosperous. And the author was pointing out that it's because the institutions that protect the property on the southern side, as in someone's not going to invest in building a business and selling a product if it could just be taken away from them the next day. So to some degree that whether whether or not it is ultimately right or moral to own land, it seems that it nonetheless is required in order for someone to feel confident enough that they're business isn't going to be taken over, destroyed. I or completely agree with you. Something to that yes, and, degree. So Yeah, okay. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, everything you said is right. Without a security that you or assurance that you can keep what you work for, you have little incentive to work for it, right? Right. So that this is the same argument for without assurance that I could exploit the book I write or the movie I make, then why would I invest money or, or in some cases borrow money to make a movie, right? Right. Um, okay. And this, the same case was if I didn't have an incentive to keep my slave for the labor that I wish to extract from it, I wouldn't buy one. Right. Um, say that again. Uh, if, if, okay. <laughs> if I wasn't, if it wasn't legal for me to buy a slave, I wouldn't buy one. Right. At least if I was a rational person. Right. Okay. So but, go ahead. but you can, you don't have to have a slave to make money, but you do have to have a stable, a stable workplace or a stable business or something like that in order to make money. Okay. And that's, that's a good point. And I will tell you why that is still immaterial. So you could argue, I I, I don't know how you could argue otherwise. It is a fact that today the slave market in all the States where it's illegal is not prosperous. It's not profitable. There are no slaves on the market. There are no buyers or sellers on the market, at least virtually none. Right. Mm -hmm. And an economy that, and a person who 
expects to buy herself slaves in a world where slavery is illegal is not going to be uh, very, very successful, right? Right. Okay. So back to the example of U.S. versus Mexico. Uh, what you're seeing is superficially um, you have more businesses and more houses and cleaner houses and more well-kept streets on a side where property is protected because that's the society that values property, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. What you're not seeing or not probably not considering, and this is you know very normal. People don't think of it because sometimes these tools or technology is unavailable. When you say property can or can or isn't isn't protected, people often forget that there are varying kinds of property. There is land. There is the computer you use. There's the toothbrush you use. Then there is your bank account. Yes, I wouldn't put money in my bank account if I knew I was going to lose it tomorrow. But if you told me that um, I could lose my house but not my bank account, where do you think I'm going to put my money? Yeah, it depends how much is in your bank account. Uh, but but my, my point is, um, if, <laughs> if I had a choice to put money in my bank account and my house, and I was told that um, one is more stable than the other, I, I would put it in the more stable one, right? Right. Okay, so what you're, say, what you're seeing is that um, when people say property, they don't really make the distinction between business use and personal use, that's number one. Two, what I would argue is, is an also very important distinction is based on marginal utility, a rich person's property versus the poor person's property. So it's not so much that I don't want to protect, I want to stop protecting all property. I believe that at some point, a person can't be allowed to own more. So whether that's a million dollars worth of property or a hundred million dollars worth of property, you got to cap it at somewhere. Right. So... I'm, I would be of the position that I agree that, that there should be things put into place. Obviously, my, I'm in favor of Andrew Yang's Freedom Dividend, a UBI, to make it so that the fact that random chance is so, so much of a reason why some people ex- excel and why some fall back, that a certain amount of money should be given to everyone and in order to not let other people th- uh, fall through the cracks, but... um. Ah, crap. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sorry. What, what was that? What were we yeah, I was saying, talking I was about right before I went into that? You got to stop protecting rich people's property. At some point, rich people can't, can't keep owning. Right. Okay. So what I was going to say is, um, again, I think rich people should be taxed for a UBI. Uh, but I'm not sure. Sh- again, a lot of it, a lot of what you're saying, I'm not necessarily against so much in theory, as you don't know how to get I am it. in practice, yeah, I totally that, did. like I said, I totally a lot of accomplishing a lot of those things seems like it would require an awful lot of authoritarianism and authoritarianism to accomplish things that are, you know, philosophically tr- honorable, uh, oh, desirable I things. I agree with you. Yeah, I, I, will, I will totally admit that, which is... Yes, some things sound great in theory, even even sound moral, but getting there may require violating morals or violating laws that we've accepted, right? right. Well, not even just that. Just the, who's going to be implementing it? People. Who's going to be choosing these people? Other people. And so it, j- just look, and I hate to sound too much like a, a right libertarian, but because they always make this reference too, but uh, going back to the Soviet Union, Russia, they were, especially at the beginning, they tried to implement these things. They, 
they legalized abortion, they legalized universal suffrage, they did all this other stuff, but as it went on in order to enforce these things, just the whole people went corrupt, the bureaucracy went, went bad, it just didn't work out that well. And so it seems to me like we still haven't gotten to the point where we could prevent that sort of thing from happening if we tried to implement implement such a huge change. Oh, I totally agree. I And, and um, I, I would even concede that the reason we got here in the first place is because we are, we are corrupt people. But uh, to, the, to the point of which, you know, you can't get there without being authoritarian or you can't get there by uh, violating the laws that we're used to. Again, I have, to, I have to remind you, what do you think we are now? Right now, we're still authoritarian. We still are very disrespectful of people's rights. We simply are changing the people we violate. Now, you are right to be skeptical and say, well, why should I trust that when you're violating the people I, I don't care about, you're not going to bite back or you're not going to become corrupt or, or we're not going to become like all those um, failed socialist countries where people with allegedly good intentions gone bad, right? Sure. Yeah, okay, that's, that's a fair question. But um, the, the, the best response I can give is, but you have to understand that the alternative we have now is favoring is continuing to favoring already the most powerful people. It, I, I, I don't know how to say this without being overly rom- romanticizing, but yes, we do have to give people who traditionally do not have power a chance to, for lack of a better word, abuse it. Yeah, that's probably where I would take a hard... <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> you're not so I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've caught the theme of, of mm-hmm. some of the stuff that I've said on the internet, but I am very much not in favor of mm-hmm. mob rule or, yeah. or absolute utter yeah. unbridled uh, tyranny of the majority. I, I, not that I'm saying I, not that I'm saying I support an er, an arbitrary aristocracy or that I don't think that the wealthy and powerful absolutely owe it to society to send the elevator back down so you know don't get me wrong but i don't have a huge amount of faith in the the masses either i totally understand that (laughs) i totally understand that and this is not to disagree with you but i do believe that you know times have changed maybe not substantially maybe not enough as the way i like it but i do believe that in the past time um well I'll, i'll remind me to to come back to the analogy of capitalism, but in a past time, you know, 200 or 300 years ago, the fear of mob rule was mostly for two reasons. You fear people who don't have money, which means they have little to lose. You fear people who don't have education, which means they are not informed to make the best decisions of who to, who to hurt or, or, or help. Those are the main justifications, at least two that I can think of, for why we fear mob rule. Um, you may disagree. Well, that may have been why they feared mob rule back then. There's actually plenty of new reasons. Schools of th- plenty of modern reasons against mob rule. For for example, f- the book "The Death of Expertise" by Tom Nichols. It goes through multiple modern examples of of things that are that have that have gone awry because of mass action or because of uh, I, I probably the easiest, most simple example that I can say is, okay, so people complain about the mainstream news, air quotes, mainstream news, Mm -hmm. sensationalizing things. They complain about it being overly biased or with 
the History Channel or the Discovery Channel. They complain, yeah, yeah, they complain about these things having corrupted the same, but the very same people complaining about these things going going crappy are the same people who refuse to watch those shows or cable news or whatever unless they are crappy. They are the same people who've driven it that direction, and yet they're blunt than that. Um, the same one yeah, complaining about. Okay, it. dude, you could be more blunt than that. Which is uh, just to give you the, throw in the data. Uh, Alex Jones and his conspiracy theorists are complaining that the media is lying to you, but they're lying even worse, right? Right. That's basically right. what you're getting at. I, 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 you, you got me. I think that's a very good example. But the um, one thing before I. Yeah. Uh, move along. I was also going to mention another example because I, I, I mentioned the Tom Nichols example. And so one of the quotes uh, from a recent book that I read mentioned him saying, when I gave talks around the country, people would say, we have to do something because Washington doesn't listen to us. And then he would say, I really get mad and say, Washington listens to you too much. It gives you too much of what you're asking for. And the problem is what you're asking for is internally contradictory and changes every few years. Do you want a national health care system or expanded Medicare? Your, your answer, we want both. No one in Washington says you can't have that. They say, yes, sir, we'll go and do it. And so that's my, th my thing. And it's true. Every four years, every eight years, whatever it is, it swings from Democrat to Republican and people act as if, you know, they, these complete paradigm shifts every few years before any one of the approaches has even has a chance to, to work. They just pull the rug out from under it. Yeah. Okay. That, that's a good point. And um, so, you know, back to, you know, how, how, how we were, you know, got, came down the road of why I, I sound like I'm advocating for, for mob rule, which is, you, you said, um, how can you implement something to the effect of wealth confiscation or wealth redistribution without being authoritarian, right? Right. Yeah, okay. My answer to that probably would be better if I put it this way, which is look at our values. What do we value today? In a mostly capitalist society, we have come to um, accept that money is more valuable than human life. We, we've come to conflate that a person having money is synonymous or at least equally honorable as somebody who was born with a smart brain or a healthy body or a, a work ethic. We, we seem to think this is probably a byproduct of being so subjective about value that we think anything that happens to produce value is valuable. So in that light, think of it this way. This is not, this is not lesser of two evils, but really, we are being, your, your fear right now is we are being authoritarian, but that is still better than being authoritarian about human life and health and basic needs. So yes, it is authoritarian or disrespectful of property to take from the rich. If you believe that ownership is always just an absolute, then yeah, all theft is wrong, which I argue that we got to be a little more subtle. Some theft is more acceptable than others. Some taking by force is more acceptable than others. It's not popular. People don't like to hear it, but it's true. Some people need money more than other people. You can, we could argue all day or what's, or who decides uh, what's, what's just, what's fair, what, who, who to take it, how much to take. But at the end of the day, we already decided that. We seem to mostly have accepted for decades that you know, the system we have today is 
mostly fair. Um, nobody is, well, yes, a lot of people are complaining, but nobody in power is complaining that the, the rich have too much money and they're not even using it. It's not even that, you know, they're, they're necessarily using it to their advantage. They're literally sitting on it. They couldn't spend it if they wanted to. Well, well, I mean, depends what you're talking about, because most of Warren Buffett's money, most of Jeff Bezos's money is in the stock market and is floating around the system and going through the... Yeah, it's making more, everything like he, can't even sp- <laughs> he can't even spend what he has. So, yes, it's making more, but the more he makes, the harder it is for him to spend it, even if he wanted to. That's, that's kind of what I mean. Right. So, a minute ago, what you mentioned was that people people value money and whatnot more than the actual backbreaking labor of the people who are doing it. And to some degree, this is true, but I would also point out that this is less the case than it ever has been in human history, particularly in developed countries. And so I'm a bit due to the fact that things have, have in fact been getting better, despite the fact that there absolutely are many terrible things that still exist and many things that need to change and be fixed and improved upon, but things are also pretty close to better than they've been for the 99.99% that the human species have exist has existed. And certainly things are much better than they've been any time in the last 2000 years, 100 years yes, there. It's just, things are drastically improved. And so the, and again, it's in, a lot of what I'm issue is with what you're saying is in practice, because I'm not convinced that in their attempts to implement these changes that you want to, imp- that you want to change, that things aren't going to f- fall down and end up with a net negative to where people are no more treated like, or just as much treated like trash or unvalued in that system in practice uh, as it is right now. Basically my whole, my claim is that the maturity of society is not to the degree to which that will work. To me, it's the equivalent of trying to force Iraq into a country, force Iraq, invade Iraq and force it to be a country like America when they, the people there were not ready for that. Oh yeah. They're not, they're not used to that. They're, People are stuck in tradition uh, in America, but particularly in countries like that. And it's that's happened multiple times throughout history where you try to drag someone kicking and screaming into what, if properly implemented, would be a better system. But the fact that the people aren't ready for it and the people that are trying to implement it are also part of that system and are imperfect uh, ends up being just as bad, if not worse than before. So my, my thing is, is I would aspire to the same sort of system that you are. I just don't know about forcing it on people rather than allowing society to evolve and change naturally, because if it is the better system, then that should be how it evolves. Um, okay. I, I mostly agree with you, but I think, um, I, I have an answer to, um, you know, what, what you were asking, you know, how do we get, you know, I think we can, we can get there by appealing to some very obvious things that most people could possibly agree on, which is number one, everybody deserves healthcare. Num- or, or number two, right. everybody deserves a, a you know, ba- basic income. I don't think that's far enough, right. but I think that's a good start. Number three, which a lot of people don't, don't like talking about, not very popular, but 
I think would go a long way is taxing vacancy. Right. Well, I, of course, agree with you 100% on the first two. I'm not completely familiar with what you mean by that third point, though. Oh, you want me to explain? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, vacancy taxes, basically, um, if you um, have how housing intended for um, renting, then it's taxed when it's not rented. Interesting idea. I don't have enough knowledge on this topic to say whether I would agree with it or not, but uh, it'd be something interesting to look into. Yeah. So from what I understand, I make your argument for it. I, I haven't fact, <laughs> I haven't fully fact checked this, but I do have people that work in real estate and property management. They did say that, you know, in some states they're already doing it. Los Angeles is considering doing it. Probably probably won't happen anytime soon, but it's an idea. The point is that um, when, when you have, this is the thing, we keep saying there's housing shortage, but there isn't. It's affordability shortage. Um, there's, there are still more empty houses than there are homeless people. Even in Los Angeles, even in the worst right. homeless populations, there are still more houses than, more empty houses than there are homeless people, especially when you account for hotel rooms and, um, um, what do you call it, um, duplexes and um, commer commercial office use, that, that kind of stuff. Um, right. That, that absolutely makes it true. But even residential, you might still, still be true. The point of this is that um, you have this situation because you're allowed to. So uh, states have tried to address uh, not vacancy. They, see, they don't call the problem vacancy. They call the problem affordability. So if you only think of affordability as a symptom, you address a symptom and then you don't address the underlying issue. So states try to do things like rent control, which sounds great in theory, which means you know, if you're renting, you're grandfathered in, and therefore you wouldn't be forced out every year just because it keeps rising up. But what it practically means is that people have a, have a very little incentive to move because as soon as they move, they lose that grandfathered in low price. The landlord could jack it up. And then the landlord, knowing that he could jack it up, will jack it up all the way to compensate for the past losses and so on. So it's a very bad policy that's <coughs> the problem of affordability. But if you taxed vacancy, what you're really saying is either you put it on the market and you rent it out as soon as possible or don't. And if you don't, then you will just be sitting on property for nothing. Good for you. If you want to sit on your your empty house and never extract value from it, good for you. Nothing we can do to that. But if you intend to, you put it on the market, you list it, you um, make plans to ex um, extract profit from your, from your rental property, which most likely you will, that's the whole point of buying it, then you will be taxed if it's not actually rented out. That means it'll, at least in theory, encourage you to rent it out as soon as possible, even if it's at some loss. It would not allow you to say that I can ultimately jack it up and then compensate for all the months that I didn't rent it out. Right. So what about... This is certainly not a problem I have, <laughs> but what if you have a second home and you, you don't intend on it being a rental property period. It is just a, a different place then that you live apply. at different times. Then it wouldn't apply. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of nuances. I, 
but the 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 short answer is this only applies if you you know did you did things to make it you to make it commercially and legally available to to rent if you don't right so basically you need to classify something classify it with the government as something that you intend on renting out and if it is in that classification then you get taxed if you don't do it uh, exactly and and this go, kind of goes back to the question of um or the the issue of there are many rentals that are technically you know illegal meaning they they were not they were not um you know prepared up to code their their people's houses that they only rent a portion of it to yes it would the trade-off would be that yes we we would make a very clear distinction between what is intended for rent and what is not intended for rent. So the only right. people getting away with it would, would be the people that aren't commercializing it. And I don't think that's a problem because of a simple question of scale. A person who has one or two of his or her own houses sitting around that they may or may not want to Airbnb occasionally or have a friend house sit, they're not the problem. The problem is people who own multi-unit apartments, people who buy, buy up whole houses with the sole intention of investment. Those are the problem. Right. So it's, you know, vacancy tax, if you had to make a distinction for who's applicable, yes, it will not be perfect, but it hits the problem, at least a, an appreciable portion of it, where, where it really hurts. Right. Um, okay. Have you ever looked into the uh, Yimby neoliberal platform? You know, yes, in my backyard, neoliberal it's basically seems seems uh, primarily worried about making cities better and more livable and all this other sort of stuff. I mean, just let me like read off a couple things. Their values are, we want our cities to be dense. Not everyone has to live in a city, but we must allow dense urban spaces for those who want to. Dense cities are livable. They allow for walkability and mass transit, reducing community times and cost. They expose us to a diverse range of people, ideas, and experiences. They allow niche businesses and interests to thrive. Dense cities multiply productivity, companies benefit, yada, yada, yada. And so that has to do with the density. Then there's diversity. The most interesting, vibrant, creative communities welcome all kinds of people, including all races, genders, ages, abilities, and sexual orientations, and integrate them throughout the city. All professions must be able to live and thrive throughout the city. Teachers, nurses, artists firefighters, plumbers, engineers, writers, managers, and many others are part of a complete community. Cities must be open to newcomers while supporting long-time residents. And then dynamic. They, the best cities are dynamic organisms, always evolving. They respect the past while actively creating the future. Today's cities are the result of past development and continued prosperity requires constant reinvention. Uh, we must allow for experimentation and embrace the uncertainty that comes with innovation. Equitable, equitable cities must ensure equitable opportunity, support, representation, and getting to more of the core of their beliefs, they say, we believe the best way to realize these values is by pairing well-functioning markets with effective government, and we reject simplistic philosophies that lionize one and villainize the other. In particular, solving our housing crisis requires a housing market. In particular, solving our housing crisis requires a housing market more responsive to the demand as well as a government refocused on public investment and social protections. And so anyway, long story short, that's only a part of the thing, but they seem like an organization that is very pragmatic and your proposals about potentially taxing 
vacancy and whatnot kind of reminds me of their their uh, pragmatic approach to trying to improve cities. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll be totally honest. The first three th- lines that you read kind of sound like, yeah, but but what or how? Because it sounds like we want to welcome everybody. Well, how do you welcome everybody other than just welcoming everybody? Yeah. Well, I somewhat right. skipped uh, skipped across and because I didn't want it to be too lar- uh, too anyway. too long. But like for the first one, the dense thing, it says dense cities are environmentally uh, are an environmental necessity. They allow us to preserve open spaces rather than mm-hmm. sprawl into them. Our densest cities must emit 70% less carbon per capita than the national yeah. average restricting urban density exacerbates climate change. Yeah. Again, they're not these, the, the beginning of the thing doesn't mention exactly how they would accomplish it. Accomplish it. That's kind of more down the, down I the think they thing. A little bit. Cause I think um, the, the, the one thing I took away from that is they believe that policies are good because policies are good, not policies are good because it demonizes a specific people. Absolutely. It should yeah. be about the consequences, not whether you, not your mythologized mm-hmm. per idea of the perfect society, which of course yeah. okay. for the right wing for Republicans would be a society where gay peoples either didn't exist or they were put in prison or they repressed themselves so much that they pretended to be <laughs> uh, straight. Um, there would be no abortion. Women having children out of wedlock would be scorned, you know, all sort of stuff. So that there's a lot that would be encompassed in the right wing, uh, dream of society. It has nothing to do with the actual feasibility or consequences of trying to put something like that into uh, trying to implement that, or even whether something implementing that is an objectively good, good or something that you should even want. Whereas, you know, uh, again, there's plenty of crazy people on the left that I absolutely am fully against. But in general, it's about results. It's not about, I think, actually, an example that I used in the last podcast was the right wing love of abstinence only sex education. They don't care that abstinence only sex education objectively leads to more STD spread and more teen pregnancy. They want to implement it regardless because they rather than being concerned with the actual consequences they're they're concerned with their their moral dogmas or optics right and so that's one of the things that i kind of like about the yimby neoliberals and just in general like the neoliberal podcast and i don't know how i know i've had a million arguments with whether it's libertarians or someone from the far left something to that arguing to me about what a neoliberal is. I don't care about arguing what a real air quotes mm-hmm. neoliberal is. All I'm doing is talking about a very specific neoliberal podcast, or I'm talking about a very specific, the Yimby neoliberals. And that is what they are is they're, they're pragmatic. They, they have pragmatic approaches to values that are undoubtedly val- like left side of the spectrum values. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, so thinking, thinking of that and, um, you know, examining my, what I, what I said earlier about, you know, taxing vacancy through the lens of, you know, don't, don't demonize landlords. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not saying landlords are bad people. We're saying housing sitting empty while people are homeless is not practical. It's mm-hmm. not sustainable. It's not moral. 
it's bad for everybody except the landlord. Right. So how do I say this without demonizing a landlord? I'm sorry. I don't know how. What if there is, and because obviously people looking for houses aren't evenly distributed throughout the country or throughout an area. So what if someone is looking for a tenant, but they actually just simply can't find one or the tenants they find are people that, that, uh, for that, well, that are obviously going to trash the place and, you know, not people that you would want as a tenant that it's not, and it's not unreasonable to not want them as a tenants. Totally good argument. And for that, I'll, I'll ask again, and this is, this is not your fault. I think this is how most people think, which is, uh, you know, what if you end up hurting people who are well-intentioned or simply they're not bad people. They just have more money than you. Right. That's um, basically what you're asking. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I don't to know that, if that's necessarily oh, what I'm asking. Um, my point is, is, say I own a house that I want to rent out, that I am fully committed to renting out at a reasonable uh, price, but the first couple, the first multiple people that I interview and to, as potential future tenants, I don't know, say you do, I don't know if you do your credit checks or whatever sort of investigation that you do, and you find out pretty quickly that there are people that would probably trash the place whether they're yeah let's just let's just say i don't, don't know make if enough income. that's because that people can make, make plenty income, of right? money and also right. still trash the place but let's but let's just let's just say with stay with the most legal legal way which is right. they don't make enough income and they're the only people you interview right right and if you don't rent to them you're going to be taxed right okay so the short answer is at this point you can decide wouldn't you rather be taxed than have your place trashed and your your answer right. should be depends on how much i'm taxed right yeah, exactly. And so, yes, I, I, I'm willing to see, notice mm-hmm. I've said this whole time. I didn't say how much a tax should be. I have some idea like, okay, maybe it should be a 10th of um, a month's rent or, or one month or half of a month's rent or so or something. But my point is obviously it can't be taxed to the point where it becomes hurtful to own, own a property. But even if it is, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because what would that lead to? It leads to, if you hate being a landlord, sell it and sell it to somebody who's willing to, to own it. That would make properties of people who don't want to be landlords anymore on the market, which should, by all, everything we understand about free market, uh, you know, supply and demand, make housing more available to people who are willing to buy and not willing to rent. So right. even that's not the worst thing. But yes, um, in practice, taxing vacancy or, or taxing anything is for two reasons. One is to raise money. Two is to punish a certain behavior. So taxing vacancy is to punish the behavior of hoarding housing, but also to raise money for what we need for either building affordable housing, which I'm against because I think there's enough already, and uh, you know, assisting people with with all other needs. But the the point is um, we could do that without hurting the landlord to the point where they, they, um, they, they feel like they have to make the decision between um, having their place trashed or, or um, being taxed, to which case they could still sell it. But if it's not taxed enough, the criticism is always, well, you're not going to, people will just keep paying the fine. And you're not going to solve the problem. And I'm willing to risk that because even if they just pay the fine, that doesn't hurt them. They don't care. And, um, and the, the house still sits empty. And worse yet, they'll um, burden it on the next tenant. That's still extra money 
that we can collect. Right. So let me make it clear. I'm not arguing it. against what your your proposal. I'm simply saying the basically the <laughs> first potential caveats that come to my mind. And I hate that that uh, you're almost going to make me sound like a libertarian or a conservative, but uh, because libertarian or conservatives think that every oh, every you, you person on welfare or every person that has low income is practically a a, a low life or a drug drug doer or uh, a- exactly and so I'm not saying that that uh, or for example they th- and they think that druggies don't deserve help to try to stop drugs they think that druggies are morally uh, insufficient and they get what's coming to them and so anyway but my point what I'm trying to get at is th- it would have to be a good balance because because Absolutely. terrible tenants shouldn't be rewarded for being terrible tenants they shouldn't get to do it no matter what i i 100 agree with you and you know and not to sound so rom- romanticized but you take a step back and ask why are people bad tenants or why are people bad people and you know yes i admit this is a little bit naive but you have to consider are these people born bad or are they the result of, you know, bad financial situations or a long habit of being in the, the environment so that either encourages or forces them to a little bit, but not, but you don't need to go that far. Just think about, just think about, you know, put it this way. Do people really want to be bad if you house them or do people even want to be bad if you gave them something better to do that isn't drugs or you gave them something more rewarding that isn't crime. This is not saying every person is savable. It's saying that. Right. Absolutely. I, I believe a lot of people thing. are. That's most of my, my speakings on the inner or my writings on the internet about how Donald Trump voters aren't evil. They're wrong. And while there are a lot of them that can't be saved, a lot of them are just stuck in an echo chamber and haven't had the opportunity to be led away from the cult and all this sort other sort of things. So you know, don't get me wrong. I'm fully in in favor of recognizing that that environment has a huge amount to do with a lot of these problems. And when I say environment, I mean you know right. within five or right. ten years, not in um, long life. Yeah. Um, sorry, you go ahead. Oh no. So what I was saying is that yes, I agree. Um, there shouldn't. No, I I'll, I'll go ahead and say it's not just that trashy. It, um. Uh, troublemakers shouldn't, or bad tenants shouldn't be allowed to destroy people's property. Bad tenants shouldn't exist. People should not be allowed to be bad tenants, just like people shouldn't be allowed to be criminals. Yeah. Right. So if, we, if we someone's a terrible that. tenant, they should now, be kicked out. What you're they should probably have really to pay is, the tax that the 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 <laughs> owner of the property would have otherwise had to pay. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's but yeah, exactly. Okay. And and I think I think this um I I. I this sounds very romantic, but I mean, you're, you're talking real romantic to me. A little bit back to this, <laughs> which is Yang kind of argue, Yang likes to argue that you know, once we have universal basic income, we can get rid of our a lot of our current welfares, and it'll create purchasing right. power, which would create jobs and and so on. What what he's really saying, if you put more hands and choices into hands of the poorest people, people are would at least be able to make. A choice to right. do better, and of course, rather than uh, Andrew supports right? universal health care, and universal health care would include uh, mental health care and drug uh, rehabilitation, and sort of, and and things like that. And so, just the whole 
not even just universal basic income, which would be a huge part of the component, but kind of the whole spectrum of of changes Andrew Yang wants to implement, I think, would make a huge uh, improvement. Yeah. Yeah. And so why, why am I bringing this up? And I bring this up because I believe a lot of our current, you know, worker protection or tenant protection or disability protection laws are based on the, the premise that this is our last line of defense. If you don't give the powerless people the benefit of doubt over the landlords and the people who have power, they have nothing because the system is so rigged in favor of the, those in government and those with money that you have to basically, you know, stick it to these people in favor of those who need more rights and more right. accommodations just to equalize it. So my belief is that once you, you do give people some basic income or some um, right to housing, then you can exchange, in exchange throw down the, the, the forceful fist and say, okay, now that I've given you the benefit of doubt and housed you, you can't give me any more excuses. If you, if you destroy property, it's not you lose your deposit. It's you're, you're right. in prison for vandalism. If you, if you make noise and harass your neighbors, you, you are a, you, we, you're, you're dealt with in a criminal way. It's not, well, maybe it's financial stress kind of excuse. Once you, um, give people, I think libertarians like to argue this is like, if once you give people some, um, some power, then the government will take away an excuse for you. I think that's true to a good extent. And I think it should be true to, to a good extent, which is, um, once we believe people can work from home, then we take away the excuse that they have to, they have to leave their home or, or some, mm-hmm. some type, type of thinking like that. So if your concern is, what if all, all we do at the end is give everybody housing, but then vandals will just vandalize with no consequence? Right. My answer is, then we address that. Okay. Well, uh, how about we, uh, not to shut you down or anything like that, but how about we uh, talk or move on to it. Maybe another talk topic. <laughs> not that I, not that uh, anything you're saying is wrong or bad or anything else like that. Just to throw. Some, yeah, exactly. Throw some uh, variety. In things. So you mentioned earlier at the very beginning, several things that say ODL style, not really libertarians, but kind of right wing libertarians, whatever you. So, so one of the things that they like to say is that monopolies can't exist without the government. How would you respond to them about that? Um, it, it's, it's true. And I mean, I would say it's true, but it ignores context. Monopolies can't exist without government, but right. nor can property. Monopoly is, I think what they probably meant to say is monopoly cannot exist without government. Right. Yeah. yeah that, they think that protecting monopolies it, right? only exist whenever, uh, for example, whenever they would give a monopoly to a telegraph company or a railroad or something to that effect. They think that's the only time monopolies come to come to exist. And of course, uh, depending on who you're talking to, like we, we were saying earlier, it doesn't literally have to be 100% of the market in order to be a m- monopoly in practice. If it's 90% of the market, it's still virtually a monopoly. Exactly. Yeah. Or practically. Yeah. So monopolies can exist as long as property is protected. That's the short answer. Um, A middle answer would be monopolies exist as long as unfair advantages are protected, such as intellectual property. 
brand names or the inherent advantage right. of simply be, being well, rich. Uh, and the third answer would be monopolies exist pretty so are much you saying until you intellectual property is an unfair advantage as in like if you have an idea copywriting it is an unfair advantage um okay i'll, I'll clarify that not not per se it's not that all intellectual property is an unfair advantage but even in today's world intellectual property protections expire right. because we've decided as a society that Right, they're supposed to accept America extended their and their intellectual protection laws to for the to the benefit of Disney. Intellectual property is not a bad idea, but it is something right. that Eventually, should be balanced with and not in some unreasonable amount of time. It should pass into the public domain. Exactly, and this is this is back to you know what I've been saying for for a long time, which is that if there's one thing that shouldn't be inherited, right, right. that yeah, would be I, it. I agree with that. Because, for example, in this case, let's stick with Disney. Uh, <clears throat> Walt Disney could, uh, you know, patent Mickey Mouse and Steamboat Willie and all that sort of thing. But his kids don't necessarily get to maintain that patent. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. Um, I think it might. Well, I'm not even sure. It, just going off the cuff, I don't. I might say that maybe there should be some, say someone invented something four years, but then they died within four years. Perhaps there should be some amount of time that their children would benefit from it. Cause four years isn't necessarily yeah. a long time as far as intellectual property goes, yeah. but in general, in general, I agree with you. Yeah. And I'm willing to have the, yeah. And I'm willing to have the conversation about whether, you know, a movie right, versus a right, patent absolutely. versus like a, a drug for should have different expiration dates. Exactly. And I, and I think what libertarians really fail on is they are very all or nothing. So you have on one extreme, which is right. all property is just as long as you have a gun. The other side is all property is just as long as it's physical right. and all intellectual property is bad. Those are the two very, those are the two strongest libertarian voices. I've, Never heard of libertarians say, "Well, intellectual property is kind of good, or intellectual property is better if we could have reformed this way." Or intellectual property. The only people that say intellectual property is great where it is today are the people that basically say, "Right, right." Everything with a gun is enforced. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. It, it's, it seems it's like good. there's an impossibility for people to have nuance <laughs> between these ideas or to think that something is good but only within a certain context or it's good to a certain degree.